You're listening to The Living Word with Danny Hodges of Calvary Chapel Fellowship in St. Pete. Into the image of Jesus Christ. He's maturing. You know that's God's desire for every single person that knows Jesus Christ. Here's the plan. For those whom God foreknew. Paul said in Galatians 1, I was set apart from my mother's womb. All he means is God foreknew that I would get saved on that road to Damascus. Just like he knew I would get saved 19 years old. Just like if you know Christ, he foreknew. And he predestined us. Not to heaven or hell. That's not biblical. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the plan. Did you know that God's plan is for you to be conformed more and more into his image? In today's message from Pastor Danny, he teaches us on the life of the Apostle Paul. God knew that before Paul ever became an apostle, that he would be conformed to the image of his son Jesus. This is God's desire for all of us. He desires that each and every one of us would be saved by His grace and through His Son Jesus. He desires that by knowing Him, we would grow to maturity and become like Him. Now here's Pastor Danny with part one of today's edition of The Living Word from the book of Acts, chapter 9. To every nation for all generations Acts chapter 9, but I want to read you an article that I don't think I've shared here in a while. I actually got this article back in 1999, and it goes like this. Now, this message for America's most famous athletes. Someday you may be invited to fly in the backseat of one of your country's most powerful fighter jets. Many of you already have. John Elway, former NFL player. John Stockton, former NBA player, for those who don't know. Tiger Woods, to name a few. If you get this opportunity, let me urge you with the greatest sincerity, move to Guam, change your name, fake your own death. Whatever you do, don't go. I know. U.S. Navy invited me to try it. I was thrilled. I was pumped. I was toast. I should have known when they told me my pilot would be Chip Biff King, Fighter Squadron 213, Naval Air Station, Oceana, Virginia Beach. Whatever you're thinking a top gun like Chip Biff King looks like, triple it. He's about six foot tan, ice blue eyes, wavy surfer hair, finger crippling handshake, the kind of man who wrestles dyspeptic alligators in his leisure time. If you see this man, run the other way, fast. Biff King was born to fly. Biff was to fly me in an F-14D Tomcat, a ridiculously powerful $60 million weapon with as much thrust as weight. I was worried about getting air sick, so the night before the flight, I asked Biff if there was something I should eat the next morning. Bananas, he said. For the potassium, I asked. No, Biff said, because they taste about the same coming up as they do going down. (laughs) Next morning, out on the tarmac, had him a flight suit with my name sewn over the left breast. No call sign like crash or sticky or lead foot, but still very cool. Carried my helmet on the crook of my arm as Biff had instructed. Fighter pilot named Psycho gave me a safety briefing. 
and then fastened me into my ejection seat, which when employed would egress me out of the plane at such a velocity, I would immediately be knocked unconscious. Just as I was thinking about aborting the flight, the canopy closed over me. Biff gave the ground crew a thumbs up. In minutes, we were firing nose up at 600 miles per hour. We leveled out. Canopy rolled over another F-14. Those 20 minutes were the rush of my life. Unfortunately, the ride lasted 80 minutes. It was like being on the roller coaster at Six Flags over hell, (laughs) only without rails. We did barrel rolls, sap rolls, loops, yanks, and banks. We dived rose, dived again, sometimes with a vertical velocity of 10,000 feet per minute. We chased another F-14. It chased us. We broke the speed of sound. Sea was sky. Sky was sea. Flying at 200 feet, we did 90-degree turns at 550 miles per hour, creating a G-force of 6.5, which is to say I felt as if 6.5 times my body weight was smashing against me. And I egressed the bananas. I egressed the pizza from the night before and the lunch before that. I egressed a box of milk duds from the sixth grade. Because of the G's, I was egressing stuff that did not even want to be egressed. I went through not one airsick bag, but two. Biff said I passed out twice. I was coated in sweat. At one point, as we were coming in upside down in a bank curve on a mock bombing target, and the G's were flattening me like a tortilla, and I was in and out of consciousness, I realized I was the first person in history to throw down. (laughs) I used to know Cool. Cool was Elway throwing a touchdown pass, or Norman making a five-iron bite, but now I really know Cool. Cool. Guys like Biff. Men with cast iron stomachs and Freon nerves. A week later, when the fins finally stopped, Biff called. Said he and the fighters had the perfect call sign for me. Said he'd send it on a patch for my flight suit. What is it? I asked. Two bags. (laughs) First time I read that years ago, thought and I came back and I wrote down at the bottom of the article, put through the ringer. I thought a little more and I wrote a second word, tested. Thought a little bit more and I wrote one last word, purged. Here's what it means, to rid of whatever is impure or undesirable, to cleanse, to purify. If there's a Bible character that that fits, there's none better than the one we'll look at this morning. Verse 1, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way... That's what they were called before they were called Christians. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And people refer to them as people of the way. If he found any there, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. It's 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus. In this day, that would have taken about a week to get there. That's nothing for Saul of Tarsus. Why? Because a zeal for God is driving him like a madman. He believes that persecuting followers of Jesus Christ is actually serving God. He doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. He believes anybody that believes Jesus is the Messiah is crazy. You're cultic. Jesus said in John 16, verse 2, listen, they'll put you out of the synagogue. In fact, the time is coming when anyone who kills you will think that they are offering service to God. Saul of Tarsus is the one who gave approval to Stephen's death. And he believed 
and Stephen being killed, he's actually serving God. Things are going to dramatically change in Saul of Tarsus' life on this particular trip. Verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? And what that means is, who are you, sir? He doesn't know it's the Lord. Who are you, sir? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I'd love to see the look on Saul's face when Jesus answered him. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. He adds something he doesn't add here. Luke doesn't add here. But Paul tells us, Acts 26, when he stands before one of the Gentile rulers, I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I know we've mentioned it before. I'm just going to mention it again, though. I believe one of the greatest instruments to goad Saul was Stephen. His life, they saw his face as the face of an angel. His message, which was spirit-filled but very cutting, calling for repentance, and yet those Jewish leaders weren't willing to repent, and so they lashed out at Stephen. And as Stephen is dying, he prays for those throwing stones at him. And I think Saul of Tarsus couldn't get Stephen out of his mind, and the Lord used that through his Holy Spirit to just continue to goad Saul. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. That would have been very humbling for Saul of Tarsus because at this point in his life, he's not used to being led. He's a leader. For three days, he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. He is so shaken up. Not only does he not eat for three days, he doesn't drink anything for three days. And he's blind physically. And I think God blinded him physically to remind him how blind he had been spiritually. Here's what Jesus said. For judgment, I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, Lord, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you'd not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Because they rejected Jesus as Messiah and claimed they knew the way to heaven and the way of righteousness, they were blind. And they needed to become blind in order that they might see. And now Saul of Tarsus is physically blind. Verse 10, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. I'll bet he's praying. You bet he's praying like he never prayed before. And you can just hear it. How sorry, Lord, I am. And he just, he just can't believe how blind he's been. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, when God tells Ananias, gives him this mission, (laughs) I think he's like Peter's cousin because Peter occasionally would pull the Lord aside and counsel him, set things straight. Lord, this is is never going to happen to you, not as long as I'm around. Look what Ananias says to the Lord. Verse 13, Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias feels like he needs to remind the Lord of who this guy is. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, exclamation point. In other words, just shut up and do what I told you. I know what I'm doing. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he must suffer 
for my name. Then Ananias went to the house, entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, that took faith. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. That's wild. I mean, he's blind. Now, something like scales fall from his eyes, and now he can see. And what he sees is a world that looks totally different, completely different than three days before. One of the first verses I memorized and learned when I was an early Christian, 19 years old, is this one, and I I just love it. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The world looked totally different to me when I received Christ as Lord and Savior. Looked totally different to Saul. The middle of verse 19, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priest? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. And that's the way you would think if you were one of the disciples then, because you're thinking, no way is this guy really a follower of Jesus now. He's just acting like a follower of Jesus to try to get to some believers that he hasn't been able to get to before. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. He's making so much trouble. They say, you just better go home. I mean, really home where you originally came from. Tarsus. And it worked. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So get this summary. Saul is initially rejected by the saints in Jerusalem. He experienced life-threatening opposition from his public ministry there. And now he's shipped home to Tarsus, where Most scholars suggest for 10 to 11 years, he just disappears. You don't see him on the pages of the New Testament again until the record in Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, where a revival had broken out. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. But for some 10 to 11 years, he's out of sight. Where was he? And what was he doing? Actually, my senior mind got that wrong. It was correct in all the other services. Before he went to Jerusalem, after getting saved on the road to Damascus, that's where the 10 to 11 years are. It happens between chapter 9 of Acts, verse 25, and verse 26. His followers took him by night, lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, there's 10 to 11 years between those two verses. 
Where was he? Galatians tells us, chapter 1. Verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him. 15 days. There you have it. Between Acts 9 verse 25 and Acts 9 verse 26 for some 10 to 11 years. That would mean seven or so years in Arabia before he went back to Damascus. What's he doing in Arabia? What's in Arabia that might be biblically significant? Galatians chapter 4. Paul illustrating from the lives of Sarah, Hagar, These things will be taken figuratively, verse 24, figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in where? Come on, open your Bible. In Arabia. He went to Arabia. Mount Sinai is in Arabia. The scriptures don't tell us. We don't have a record. But if I'm a betting man, I bet he went to Mount Sinai. Why? Repeatedly in the Old Testament, Mount Sinai is called the mountain of God. It's where God met with Moses. Moses came down from the mountain and his face shone with the glory of God because he had been in the presence of God. I believe he went to Mount Sinai, but even if that's not true, he's in Arabia for some seven plus years or so, and we hear nothing for 10 to 11 years total. If you do one thing in response to this message, it'll radically transform your life. One thing. And I'll tell you before we're done what it it is. Think about Saul of Tarsus. He's a Pharisee. As a matter of fact, he's a very proud Pharisee. He writes in Philippians about his pedigree. Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, the middle of it. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, thinking he's serving God. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. You would have looked at Saul of Tarsus if you knew him, and he's so committed to God, and he's so religious, and he's so, he's so straight, if you will. You would have thought, if anybody's going to heaven, this guy is. He's knowledgeable. He knows the scriptures. He had studied under Gamaliel, the greatest teacher of the day. And so he's knowledgeable. And if you will, he's notable. Everybody knows who Saul of Tarsus is. Some might have suggested when he got saved and he goes out and begins preaching boldly the name of Jesus. Some might have said, you might as well just start Saul of Tarsus ministries. But that would have been a mistake. And it's a mistake that's been made, unfortunately, too many times. Somebody notable, somebody famous gives their lives to Christ and throw them right in the spotlight before they have time to grow and mature. And sometimes they don't make it. I don't know exactly where he was in Arabia, but I know what was happening in Arabia. You know what was happening? 
He was being sanctified. He's being transformed and conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. He's maturing. You know, that's God's desire for every single person that knows Jesus Christ. Here's the plan. For those whom God foreknew, Paul said in Galatians 1, I was set apart from my mother's womb. All he means is God foreknew that I would get saved on that road to Damascus. Just like he knew I would get saved 19 years old. Just like if you know Christ, he foreknew. And he predestined us not to heaven or hell. That's not biblical. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the plan. You get saved. You receive Christ as Lord and Savior, but that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning. Now there's a process, and it doesn't happen overnight, even to religious zealots like Saul of Tarsus. As a matter of fact, God would have a harder time changing some things in his life than he might have a prostitute that comes to know the Lord. Because this man's entrenched for his whole life in so much religious garbage that has no basis of truth in it. And while he was radically saved on that road to Damascus, there are things that need to change in his life and change dramatically. And it would not happen overnight. It took years. Let me suggest to you, based on scripture, some of the things that changed in Saul of Tarsus' life. He was greatly humbled. Oh, he was humbled that day when he got saved on the road to Damascus and led like a child blind into Damascus. That, That was humbling. Yeah, he was humbled. But the depth of his humility, it so deepened during that time in Arabia. So deepened. So much so that he would later change his name from Saul to Paul. You know what Paul means? Little, small. He was humble. Saul and Moses had one thing in common. That was pride. Remember God calls Moses? Moses has grown up in the palace of Egypt. He's been educated in all the the greatest education you could get in the day. Acts tells us he he was powerful in speech and in action. He knew how to get things done. He knew how to communicate. And so when he felt the calling of God on his life, he goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew. And so he slays the Egyptian. He took matters into his own hands. And yes, God had called him to be the representative and the deliverer, if you will. But it was not to be by his own power. It was not to be by his own power and ability. It was to be God's. And so God sent him to the backside of the desert for 40 years. And after 40 years, guess what Numbers chapter 12 verse 3 tells us about Moses? Moses was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And to become the great men of God that both Moses and Saul of Tarsus, who would become the great apostle Paul, to become the great men of God that they did, they would have to be humbled greatly. I'll tell you another one, and this had to be a challenge for the Lord. He's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He has worked for years feverishly to earn his righteousness. And he believes he's got it. He always ate kosher foods. He tithed. He gave a tenth right down to his salt and pepper. He fasted twice a week. Pharisee. He gave to the poor. And he made sure, like other Pharisees, you blow a trumpet and make sure everybody can see the righteous act you're doing. You're giving to the poor. He did all kind of baptisms, baptisms, washings, ceremonial washings. Jesus said about the Pharisees, they wash cups and pitchers and pots and kettles. But it wasn't just to clean them for cooking. No, it was a ceremonial thing. And if you didn't do it, you're considered you're going to be defiled if you eat out of those things. They'd wash hands, not just to get the dirt and the germs off to eat. Remember, they criticized the disciples. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? That's the tradition of the elders. But Jesus didn't do it, and so his disciples didn't do it. But Saul did all that. 
Jesus commissioned his followers in Acts 1 verse 8 by telling them that when they received the Holy Spirit, they were to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This commission extends to us right here, right now. Our faith isn't meant to be kept a secret. We need to share it with everyone, everywhere. We hope today's message on the living word has been an encouragement to you and even inspired you to tell someone you know about the Savior that you have. If you'd like to hear more teachings from Pastor Danny, visit ccfstpete.church and click on the Sermons tab. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel while you're there to get updated content each time we post it. We love connecting with our listeners, so also stop by our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. Join in the conversation and we'll add some positive encouragement to your newsfeed. Before our time is up with you for the day, we'd like to ask you to consider partnering with us as we continue to share the hope of salvation with the world. Would you pray for us each time you tune in to The Living Word? Pray that we keep listening to God and following His plan for our program. Please pray too for all who will be listening next time that their ears and hearts would be open to the truth and love of their Savior. We know the power of prayer and we appreciate you doing this for us. Thanks so much for being part of our time here today. Join Pastor Danny next time for more from the Book of Acts right here on The Living Word.